face transplant can be life-changing for a severely disfigured patient. But what should be the ethical considerations in evaluating a candidate? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Joining us to discuss the ethics of transplanting a face is Dr. Stuart Finder, Director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Thank you very much, Doctor, for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. To begin with, how do you develop an adequate consent for this relatively new experimental procedure? In many ways, this is no different than any other innovative, possibly controversial experimental procedure. We have many, many years, one could even argue going back to the end of World War II with the release of the Nuremberg Code, but certainly it's, it's really in the last 20 years that we've really been focusing on the IRB process and making sure that we present to potential subjects the full range of risks and concerns associated with being a subject in a research study as well as the potential benefits. And you'll notice that I emphasize a subject in a research study. I think that's the first thing to note here with face transplants is that we are still in the very early phases of this intervention, and so it is still very much a research endeavor. How do you then inform the patient in this particular situation of the risk-benefit ratio that has to exist? So I think you begin by first acknowledging that, to and and I'm not intimately familiar, I should note, with the institutions that have done these procedures so far, either here in the U.S., the two that have been done, or in Europe. But I would imagine that to be considered a candidate, based on what they have, have revealed to us in their publicity, to be a candidate, already these are patients that have significant deformities due to traumatic accidents. And so these are patients that have lived with for some extended period of time these kinds of deformities. And it's not just a matter of it's an inconvenience or it's something that they don't like how they look. These are patients that aren't able to eat, often aren't able to speak. They really have significant loss of function. So that's the first thing is that you're starting with patients that have significant loss of function. And this holds out the promise of being able to restore some function. So you begin by actually talking about what it is that this procedure can represent for them in terms of a benefit. That has to then be immediately matched with talking about the risks where the most significant risk here is that, like any transplantation, there will be a lifelong dependence on immunosuppressive drugs, and there are a lot of complications with that. I think, though, one of the things that really separates this experimental procedure from, say, kidney transplants or liver transplants are that these patients, their life is not at risk. I mean, their functional life. They are living a life that could continue for many years, and yet we are putting them at risk with not only the procedure but also the use of drugs for many years to shorten that life. Doesn't this represent a tension that doesn't exist in some of the other transplants that we could talk about? It is different certainly from heart, liver, and lung. It's a little bit more analogous with renal. And in some sense you might say that it is 
a hybrid between like a renal transplant and then some other very complicated quality of life based procedures. And the reason I use the renal transplant as the parallel is that there are people that live on dialysis for 20, 25 years, maybe even longer. Why is it that then they get kidney transplants? It is often for some of these patients, a quality of life issue. And so quality of life is something that we do take very seriously in medicine and healthcare. And this is one of them. But again, I think it's important to see these are people that you're, you are correct in noting that they could live for many, many more years without undergoing this procedure. But the kind of lives that they have are severely limited. And it's not just a matter of, again, as I've mentioned, because of the physical deformity and how people may react to that, which is partially what people have to deal with in their lives. But it is minimal basic functionings, being able to speak, being able to chew. And if you think about, for instance, the way in which food and eating plays an important role in our social lives, how speaking is so important in terms of the development of relationships with people, these are fundamental issues about now, the quality of life and how it is that we actually live in, in a community and in, and in a group. So in many ways, the procedure is done to somehow alleviate the isolation that these patients experience. It is to alleviate the isolation. It is also to allow them to have a better self-understanding, I think, also. So it's, it's not just the isolation in, in a real physical sense, and it's not even the isolation as a mere psychological. It is also a kind of existential and hence moral understanding of what it is to be a human being. Because again, if you think about how those of us who are fortunate to live normal lives, how we regularly interact in the world and how important the working function of a face is as part of that interaction. What I've seen in the literature that this type of operation is often compared to hand transplants in the sense that in both cases, patients can continue to live as they have but you're offering them an opportunity to expand their life. Do you see a comparison with that? Yes, I think actually that is an excellent comparison because it raises, in fact, something that you haven't yet touched upon in terms of a real challenge. We do have experience with people, and there's one in particular that I know of, who've had hand transplants, and I'm imagining soon enough we'll probably have feet transplants, so we'll have these limb transplants. People who, after it's been done and they've lived with it for some time, they've been on the immunosuppressive regimens for some time, and they get to a point where they say, you know, it's not worth it. The quality of my life has not been improved enough, and so they ask for removal, and they stop taking their immunosuppressive drugs. And there's one of the challenges that I think we also have to look forward to with the face transplant is what happens if people because it is not life-saving, it is about improving quality and functionality, what happens if people get to that point where they say, eh, this is no longer worth what uh, the burdens are, it's not what I thought. With a hand or a foot potentially, as complicated as those surgeries are, we're pretty good at doing amputations and doing them in, in a very well way so that we get an outcome that's positive. What about somebody that we've done the 12 hours of reconstruction of their face and we have done all that it takes and they come to this point. This is, I think, something that 
we're going to have to be prepared to deal with, which is, again, one of the reasons why we should see this is very, very early in the development of this procedure. It is still an experimental procedure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickerton. Joining me to discuss the ethics of transplanting a face is Dr. Stuart Finder, Director of the Center for Healthcare Ethics at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. You brought up a very interesting thing. The patient decides that he doesn't want to live with his transplant. In your consent, shouldn't you discuss possibility of the graft, his face, failing, and what then do you offer him? Right. I think that this is a very important issue, and I agree that it must be in the consent form or in the consent process that these issues are discussed. And here's where the face transplant is more than like the solid organ transplant than the limb transplant, because you can take off the limb. With kidney transplant, you can go back onto dialysis. With the nature of these kinds of surgical procedures with the face transplant, and this is based just on what I have read and and my understanding of it, I'm not sure that you can actually do a complete reversal because of the intricate connections that are made. So it is going to be more like if you go for a heart transplant or a liver transplant, once you commit yourself to this, it's a one-way road. There is no going back. And that's one of the things that people have to understand going into it, and which is also why, at least for the two in the United States, these are patients who there have been extensive discussions. Often the teams have been preparing for several years. It's not that somebody shows up and in a week or even in a month, they are then receiving this procedure. I've read that for a rescue operation, as much as 1,200 centimeters of skin would have to be available. And many of these patients have already had reconstructive surgery prior to going through transplant. And so this becomes a real issue whether there will be skin available for a rescue operation. And I think this is an important piece that also shows that where a lot of the public, when they hear about the face transplant, they start having that sort of science fiction imagination thing going. And they think of, you know, that movie Face Off where people have complete reversals of who they are and what they look like. And they think of face transplant as a kind of cosmetic surgery. What you're noting is one of the realities that will always keep this, I believe, as something that is really for a very limited and select few in terms of the kinds of patients who will qualify because you really have to meet all of the potential criteria, one of which will be this issue of having enough skin, as well as your understanding, the severity of the deformity, and so on. Well, you've touched on evaluating the candidate. And how do you go about psychologically and psychiatrically evaluating patients to be a candidate for this procedure? So in many ways, as I said earlier, this is no different than both the ongoing transplant processes that we've had in place for decades now in terms of heart and lung and liver and kidney. It also is in many ways, no different than the kinds of processes we have in place for any experimental procedure. And so there is a long tradition of having multidisciplinary teams that represent the range of concerns. On transplant teams, you always have social workers, chaplains, psychiatrists, psychologists, 
people from the internal medicine side of things, people from the surgical medicine side of things. Often there will be financial counselors. In other words, you try to address as many of the concerns and have it built into your team members and that you have a very rigorous process that lasts often weeks and months of making sure that this patient is adequately prepared. And part of that, I'd have to ask you, is it conceivable that there might actually be a problem adjusting to a new face that may be as problematic as the deformity that the patient had prior to the surgery? That's an excellent point, and it is one of the explicitly ethical elements here. This kind of adjustment we know happens even with solid organs. People report that they have a heart and they feel differently, or people report having dreams that they think are due to the donor. And whether there is a reality or not, the fact that people experience their undergoing of transplant this way makes it significant. And I think the same will be true with face transplants, even though, again, based on the ones that have been done, it is suggested that you don't really look like the donor, that's science fiction, they try to, to reconstruct so that you look more like what you used to look like. But that issue of how we identify with our physical appearances as part of our self-understanding and then how we account for what's important to us based on that, deeply rooted in just being human. And this is an issue that people have to be prepared for is that they will undergo a change in their appearance, and that will have echoing effects into their self-understanding. As I sit and talk with you, I think about how that our societal standards are really driving this particular experimental procedure, and it bothers me as a physician, shouldn't we be able to meet the eyes of a patient with a deformity without looking away? Yeah, you know, I, I think that there is some element in that, although I, my sense is that that's not the main driver of of this particular boat. I think that there is more a concern with how to help people who have undergone traumatic loss of function and how to allow them to have a more normal life more than how to have a more normal appearance. But the point you're raising is absolutely an important point, and it probably has implications way beyond face transplant in terms of how we devote resources for people's physical appearances, and in the process, ironically, seem to be less inclined to pay attention to the nature of how we actually interact with people and treat people, which are the deeper ethical concerns. I want to thank my guest from Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, Dr. Stuart Fender, and we've been speaking about the ethics of transplanting a face. Dr. Fender, thank you very much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. And so I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.